As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Curtis M. Lawson, host of Weird Transmissions. This episode is a little bit different than what I normally do. While it still focuses on dark art, there's a larger than normal percentage of socio-political conversation. Some listeners may find the subjects discussed to be either troubling or offensive. Proceed at your own caution. My guest today is Rob the Baron Miller from Amoebix and Tau Cross. He is a legendary punk musician, a world-class swordsmith, and a, um, I guess, esoteric thinker. So thank you so much for coming on, Rob. And for anybody who's not familiar with you and uh, your very rich background, why don't you just kind of tell us who you are and what it is you do? Well, thanks for having me on here, Curtis. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose that... Foremost, really, I, I'm, I'm a musician, um, although that's something a bit more sporadic, really, than my, my day-to-day job. But I've been playing music, or what we can loosely describe as music, since 1979 or so, um, in one incarnation, which is, first of all, the band with no name, and then the major one, which was myself and my brother, uh, again, starting a band called Amoebix, which um, were not initially particularly successful, uh, we did a couple of um, couple of singles, uh, a twelve inch, and we did uh, two albums, Arise and Monolith, and uh, packed in in 1987 uh, through lack, really, I suppose, of what we would perceive as a response to what we were doing. Only to find that in the the age of the internet, the band had become something of a, a cult phenomenon, if you like, and uh, I was enticed to return back to uh, this stage really in around 2008-2009 and did another album with Amoebix and uh, a a new drummer, um, Roy Mayorga at the time, Um, after which the the successful uh, (coughs) reunion imploded as it was bound to through the the characters involved and I went on and um, uh, went into my own venture, which was Tau Cross, which is some would see as a sort of continuation of some of the strains of ideas in Amoebix with a, a perhaps a slightly different musical approach, but still uniquely recognisable. And to one degree or another, I've been doing that since then. Um, presently on the, the afterglow, really, of having released the fourth album, which is was in fact the third album, but as you'll probably inform your viewers, the third album didn't appear and was scrubbed from the history books. So this is a, a, a renewed version of it, recorded from recorded from scratch, 
and rewritten. And uh, that's where we are now, 2020, um, the end of the world and uh, <laughs> entering a new and authoritarian future. Uh, and uh, eh, a fourth album for, for Tal Cross. So where we go, that's more my history. All right. Um, now, you've been doing this since like 78 or something, you know, uh, a, a huge amount of time. And you mentioned that the kind of the Amoebix reunion was destined to implode because the characters involved. What, what do you mean by that? Why Why was it kind of destined to, to fall apart? Uh, two brothers. It's that uh, that heady that heady concoction, which is uh, proven to be the the um, downfall of many a many a Brit band, if you like. <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, myself and my brother, obviously, we when we were growing up together and forming a band, we were full of um, full of vim and vigor and, and enthusiasm, and the the way we reacted together helped uniquely to form the kind of sound and the attitude that Amoebics had, which was different to anybody else at the time or arguably since. Um, but with that comes the, 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 the usual sort of, um, uh, the, the brotherly difficulties. So those, those, I guess, resurfaced after, um, the Sonic Mass, the last Amoebics album came out and we parted our ways at that point. Um, and hopefully, you know, both parties doing well from that. Um, but, you know, it's a. It was a, a kind of like um, uh, a concoction of. You know, you you in some of the more interesting um, combinations of people, you have you have very different characters. Or you have ones that rub against one another in the wrong way. You know, um, and myself and my brother, we've we we both have a great deal of love and affection for each other, and we also have a great deal of mistrust and uh, ambiguity too. I suppose. That, that's understandable. And it seems, um, you know, I'm just getting this from things I've read and um, the, the kind of documentary about you guys, but it seems that you have, at least to a certain degree, um, very different personalities. And um, it seems like you were kind of more put together and, um, I guess, given within the context of, you know, you know, squatting and being in this punk band and such, you were kind of the more responsible one. And he was kind of um, a little bit more wild. Is that correct? Yeah, to to. Yeah, that's, to be fair, that's that's right. Um, I mean, um, Stig was was much more indulgent than I was really um, and paid the price for that, too. Uh, whereas I was kind of um, squaring off to life at that point and uh trying to challenge it head on really and and trying to use the resources the limited resources i had at the time to to really create something um and through the through will and through um that that unique creative instinct you have when you're young and full of the ability to do pretty much anything that you want to do in how did the how did the dynamic work with you guys as far as is how the band worked between me and Steg, you mean? Yes. Um, we would talk uh, in depth about what we were trying to communicate. So we had a language and an ability to be able to articulate ideas between one another, which was very essential to Amoebics, because we were going into territory that we instinctively felt um, 
that we were connected with. So <clears throat> both of us having had the experience of growing up in rural Devon on the edge of the moors and exposure to, um, I suppose, uh, nature in in its extremities, but also the the very powerful sort of chthonic nature of the earth as well. And uh, growing up within a within a family where we were we were always able to discuss the more um, the, I, I suppose the more occult subjects really. So we yeah, from me and me and Steg, I suppose we could write well together in that way. I mean, he'd come with an idea um, for a topic, and I could articulate that. Uh, lyrically um and he could yeah put a put a bit of guitar together and i'd try and put the bass around that i mean we weren't musicians uh, and i wouldn't i wouldn't say that i was particularly a good musician these days either i haven't really improved a great deal but um we were driven purely by uh force and willpower uh, and the, the the need at that point to manifest this particular energy that we felt and a, and a kind of stream of consciousness that seemed to be channeled through us uniquely and, and there was something unique about about a music i think still to in town cross you can see it um as i said a lot of the the bands at that time seemed to have been or at least with that in that scene seemed to have been focused on kind of more materialist ideas and, and political ideas and such and amoebics I, I was talking to a good friend of mine we were uh, driving around and kind of discussing your music and how there's something about amoebics that is just so primal and pagan to it. And it's, um, he was saying to him, it's kind of artistically the most pure expression of kind of a non-denominational paganism, um, that he can think of And that, um, that primal element really set you guys apart i feel you think that that's accurate yeah and it's not contrived that's the thing about it it's like it's very it's a very genuine expression of whatever the hell it was that was trying to manifest through what we were doing um and that has continued to this day i would describe it as almost being haunted with a particular um zeitgeist if you like that's of something that i have to do and something that i have to express so when I when I look at it, um, I try to look at it from the outside and, and the way that other people would write songs or how lyrics and all the rest of it. This it's very different um, because it's not it's not the same it's not the same space at all that that we're inhabiting or that I'm inhabiting lyrically. Um, but as I say, this it's not it's not deliberately contrived. It's just that I'm trying to express something which I which I do touch on from time to time. Um, but it's very much to do with it's, it's a connectedness between the individual and the natural world and also the the phenomena within the natural natural world, too. So I, I don't know. It's, it's it is very difficult to grasp hold of. It's like something between waking and sleeping, you know. Yes. And and I do feel that it, it comes across so much more sincere than a lot of bands who who go out with that i guess in mind they they say you know i want to start like a pagan metal band or you know things like this and um where a lot of it is just kind of window dressing or quoting from this work or that work um well, that, I, I just go ahead problem, sorry it's a problem that you get when you when you go into the the what the phenomenon that happened after we had given up really in, in 87 was this whole 
idea about genre and genre specific stuff. So there was almost like a filing and ranking system that was um, and it continues to be more and more convoluted now where people need to be um, the categorized uh, and, and stuffed into certain little boxes. And kids feel this this kind of like the the the, the urge to conform if they want to be able to, uh, I suppose, succeed either in the light of their, their, their peers or in a broader sense um, by putting a tag onto themselves. But with Amoebics, it wasn't like that. And we, we, we didn't come we didn't come into being within so much of a strict um, uh, regulatory system, really, where you had to be able to say, this is, you know, this is some um, black death metal, blah, blah, substrate, whatever, whatever, you know, it was, I mean, back in the day, there wasn't such a thing as crust punk. There was an f- expression that was used uh, by kids that were pretty much dirty squatters, really. And you say you're pretty crusty, you know, and that itself came from the, uh, the indigenous kind of like, traveler community in the uk too so it was only later on that people actually wanted to be able to stick a label onto the band and say amoebix was a crust metal punk band or whatever it's like it wasn't amoebix was just a band that that evolved within the within the punk milieu really um when the um really when the 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 twin streams of punk and metal were beginning to blend together you know and we took from one another uh and and used that to inform ourselves you know used it really metal was the metal was the battering ram um for amoebics that we used to really force this thing across whereas previous to that we'd had this more loosely defined kind of like tribal sort of um pop punk ethos i suppose something like that i don't know but um we'd, we'd always had this idea about making intense music and trying to find a medium to do that in or trying to find a way to express ourselves as intensely as possible and, and metal seemed to be one of the things that was really doing that along with people like killing joke and, and uh, joy division in in other other extremes too and you know it's interesting when you said the the thing about all these hyper I guess subgenres and people really wanting to to put a label on themselves because it has gotten it's gotten almost comedic. Um, they keep whittling themselves into these kind of little pigeonholes, and it, it's it's disheartening to me as, as someone who appreciates art as an as, and as an artist myself. Yeah. Well, it's restrictive, and it's um, it's a corralling of culture, uh, and it's exactly the same phenomenon that happens through social media too. It's basically getting people to form smaller and smaller groups that agree with one another broadly um, and distance themselves from one another. So there's no, there's no common ground at all. Um, there's just people either trying to mimic, mimic or imitate one another to be able to um, appear acce- accessible and acceptable to their peers. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that was something I was fortunate enough not to really have grown up with. So we didn't feel the restrictions of having to fit into any mold. We were just trying to, experiment very very freely um with what was available to us at the time so better days in in that sense yeah absolutely and how much of that do you think is organic that kind of hyper tribalism where we're we're putting ourselves into these little niches how much of that do you think is is just an organic thing that has happened naturally and how much do you think of it has evolved from i don't know like corporate media trying to 
make people easier to advertise to. Because this is something I thought thought about when I was younger, was that the record companies and MTV and such would would try to break up, try to make these more specialized genres so that they could advertise to people more easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a cynical operation. And, you know, once, once you start to talk about the music industry, and it is an industry, then you realize that it's all, it's all run on this kind of cynicism. It's not to do with people that are creative in themselves or that understand the creative impulse. It's to do with people that are profit generated, and that's it. Um, so they're always they're always out for either creating or looking for the new phenomena which they can latch onto like little vampires and bleed dry and then move on to the next one. So it's uh, it is it's a very cynical um, industry and a very cynical approach that people have. As far as the the idea about this phenomena generally, um, I think that it revolves around the cowardice of the individual generally to stand out and above and apart from the crowd uh and generally speaking through the through the pressures that are well they're pressures and they're not even really pressures at all they're they're the perceived pressures that are brought on by um their their network of people who generally speaking they never actually fucking met in their lives anyway pardon mm-hmm. my name. um so there's there's an, there's an extraordinary level of cowardice complicity um in in the world today and that is being channeled and funneled into uh, into what we see. So neatly marketed, um, antiseptic, and um, and uh, emasculated music, if you like. In your opinion, does not just not sonically, so to speak, but in spirit, is there punk rock anymore? Is that is punk dead? It's a different. It's a different thing now. People's people's understanding of punk rock is so completely um, twisted and uh, and and perverted now to what it used to be. When we started out, it was broadly speaking, um, it was an it was an open canvas, and you could do what you wanted to do, and you could express yourself in any way whatsoever. And it was um, it was it was a liberating time, I suppose, for people that. Uh, thought they didn't have any other voice at all that particularly weren't artistic or they weren't necessarily musically competent it gave them the chance to be able to do something and make a noise or make a statement and it was all open and it's the very opposite now it's it's as i say it's corralled and it's increasingly um more and more conformist and terribly so now so is punk dead i don't know i mean I, i don't really have a relationship with with whatever is called punk now, um, to be honest. Uh, the people that I grew up with and uh, shared I- ideas with when I was a teenager and in my, my young 20s, um, they, no, they no longer seem to have any focus whatsoever. They're just more interested in um, bleating along to, to one another's, um, as I say, conformity, really. I, I kind of see the same thing. And... I think back to I'm a little bit younger than you, and I think back to in the the late '90s when I was playing band in bands in the early 2000s, and one of the things with me, you know, I I'm mainly came from I played in like black metal bands and stuff like that, and I've always been straight edge though my whole life, and that wasn't really like a cool thing in the metal scene, um, or in like the punk scene around Boston, and 
there were certain ways that I refused to conform to even within those scenes. And it was always wild to me that people would be like, oh, you're not metal enough. You're not punk rock enough because you won't do these things that all of us do. Um, so even at that point, it, that kind of conformity had already started within scenes. And I, I think that it's gotten worse over the years. It's, it's always there. You scratch under the surface, you're always going to find it. I mean, the, when you when you see a group of people who, who think that they're um, they're creating something new by wearing a different uniform, um, that's the giveaway, really. And I, I will admit to to having done that, you know, and I've, you know, I've I've dressed the part and I've done the, the the thing and all the rest of it, and that that was fine. It was fun when I was a kid, but you get to a stage where you realise that there's something slightly ridiculous about it that you think that you're being a, a, a great rock and roll rebel, but you're in fact quite the opposite. You're creating a a subculture of, of rules and regulations and very, very stiff attitudes toward um, any of the heretical ideas that might emerge from, from people that choose to go outside of the, of, of the, the fold of the elect. It's just, we tend to do that in, in groups, really. We, we, we go one way or another, either you start to form um, bonds with, with groups that, that can increasingly be expected to think and, and behave in the same manner or you have to recognise that your individual path has has to be outside of that. I mean, you can interact with people, of course, along the way, but um, there's something something is desired of the the person um, who has to step into that kind of conformist um, network. You you need to switch off part yourself, and I don't like that really. I'm I'm not comfortable with it. I saw growing up in the in the whole punk scene. I saw most of the the most creative, amazing, and uh, and interesting people were far far away from the people who were in the uniform or the, were speaking to speak. They were they were just naturally shamanic individuals, if you like. That you could see they had their own light about them, and they didn't conform with that um, that subculture really. Yeah, absolutely, and I find that. In my experience, a lot of, I guess, the the deeper aspects of any subculture, whether it's punk or metal or whatever, um, or even if you go into, you know, occultism and such, the a good chunk of, of the people in the uniforms, as you say, are really just there to party in a different uniform and don't um, truly appreciate or understand the deeper aspects that kind of created the movement. Yeah, well, there's that, but then again, some people they don't they don't need depth for stuff anyway. It depends. You 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 get what you bring, really. Um, it's sort of if you have low expectations, that's exactly what you're going to get. You know, if you <laughs> if you if you feel yourself more more deeply involved, then you need to be more deeply involved. You need you need to do your thing and and, and claim your space. But um, a lot of people, you know, like you say, it's just it's just party party time, and that's it. And there's this, yeah. Or you, you, it also tends to coincide with the, the period within a, a, a young a young person's life where they need to they need to, to let off some of that steam, and they might find themselves involved with a with a group or a subculture and all the rest of it. But if you look at them twenty years years down the road, you you, you generally speaking find a, a bank manager or you know, somebody else that's uh, that's that's gone on to something very different. Really, at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, now I have a. a 
I guess a practical question about about those days when you guys were squatting and playing and everything. Just something that I've always wondered: where did you guys keep your instruments, and how did you keep them from getting stolen? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> there, there was a lot of theft. There was a lot of theft. Um, we didn't have any lockup places or anything like that. So, I mean, illustrated by the the. One of the, the last squats we were in up in Cottom in, in Bristol, and I went away to Stonehenge and Free Festival. It's 1983. It's a year before it had a big battle of the Beanfield, and um, it was no longer a free festival. But we, we were going across there. I left my stuff back at home, and all I had was a mattress um, uh, in this squat, and it was like, and a, a load of records. And my record collection was Black Sabbath predominantly. Everything I could possibly get hold of. Um, and picture discs and all the rest of it. Went away for a week, um, came back and opened up the door to, to my room and there weren't, there weren't even any floorboards. So it was just three floorboards in the middle um, <laughs> with a, the mattress on the top. All the rest of the stuff had gone. It's like, ah, oh, fuck. You know who's done that. You know, immediately you know the fuckers that have done this. So we went down armed with bats trying to, to get our, our, our revenge on them. But of course, nothing happened with that. So yeah, there was this there was this constant um, constant theft, um, constant insecurity, uh, uh, and yeah, I don't know where where did we keep up? Yeah, basically, you, you, a bass guitar would be if I had a bass back then, it was a piece of shit, really, an absolute piece of junk that nobody would really want to steal. If they did, they get they get a few pennies for it, and that was it. So yeah, we had a practice bass at the Impulse Cafe down in St. Paul's um, and uh, the, I think it was five pounds for an hour down there. So we'd uh, we'd go and share a, a practice space with Disorder or Chaos UK. Uh, sometimes we could leave stuff down there overnight if they locked the place up. But generally speaking, we'd have to haul it out with us and find some place to put it. Hopefully somebody was in all the time in the, in the house or the squat. All right. That, that's wild. Yeah, I was thinking about that, particularly with like drums. I, I feel like that would be difficult. <laughs> Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it's funny that you, you're making me think here because I'm just trying to think where where were these bloody instruments? And you, you just you just people would have stuff in rooms, bits and pieces there here and there, but there was no official space for doing anything. So things would be dragged around from one area to another, and All often right. a ragtag. So if you were going to be doing a gig, if we were turn, turning up and playing with say Flux of Pink Indians, you'd be relying on their kit predominantly. Maybe the the drummer from us would the virus would bring along a snare drum um, or something like that, but a lot of shared equipment too. That makes sense. Now, when I was watching uh, the documentary about you guys, it talks about how back with the band with no name, um, you didn't even know to tune your instruments and such. So, at one point, did you decide that you were going to to really learn how to play? Well, I just. I argue that we never really learned how to play, but the first time we had, first time we had to actually get into tune was the first time we went into a studio, which was Cave Studios in Bristol, and we saved up our gyros, which is like our social security checks, between us, and we put eighty-five pound together, and we booked a day in Cave Studios adjacent to St Paul's. Went round there, and this guy showed us a guitar tuner. It's like, what the hell's that for? You know, it's to make all those all those things sound the same. So. Yeah, so we tuned the guitars and went, well, that's a revelation, isn't it? So you stop, you stop <laughs> and you, you just keep on learning, you know? Yeah. 
All right, let's um let's jump gears to the to the new album. So, Messengers of Deception, uh, which has finally come out recently, and I'll start off by saying that it is honestly one of the best fucking albums I've heard in years, and I've probably listened to it about a hundred times. I listen to it pretty much every time I go to the gym since it came out. So that's like four times a week, um, and, and I I absolutely love it. From you know sonically lyrically um but it there's a lot of controversy around this album primarily because of something in the liner notes it got pulled in the original version so could you give us a rundown of what that whole thing was yeah okay i'll try to um we we uh decided that we were gonna as a band we were gonna go into the studio for the first time and the first two albums were were recorded basically in between Canada, um, Minneapolis and the Isle of Skye. And we put the, you know, we'd be working together on a Dropbox and put things together and then have a mix down here. So it was very much a DIY sort of effort, but we thought by the time of, of um, album number three coming together, let's come on, let's, let's actually get into a studio and see how we do with that. So we spent a great deal of money uh, <coughs> and time going into studios in Minneapolis uh, came back home and, and everything was recorded and mixed down all the rest of it. And come the um, the release of the album, I, I had a, a uh, an email from Relapse Records who were disturbed by me naming um, Gerard Manuin as one of the persons um, that I was uh, not necessarily on a thanks list, but somebody that, that had uh, had some influence on me, not, not for the album itself, but at this particular time in my life. And now that... Uh, wouldn't have been a big deal if it, if it hadn't gone to a, um, a German magazine called Ox Fanzine, who um, picked up on this as being the son of um, Yehudi Manuin, and uh, the book that he'd written, which I'd, I'd read and I'd found very, very interesting. Um, it was labelled as being written by a Holocaust denier primarily, and um, so that's that's what you get if you go to Wikipedia. So of course everybody uh, starts to to shit themselves including at least 50% of my former bandmates, and uh, everything goes flying up in the air. The now, did Gerard write this book, or did you, you said his father, was this his father's book or her, his book? No, no, Ger- Gerard wrote this book. His okay. father was famous, um, uh, he's a virtual, he's a, a violinist. Uh, okay. He was, a, he was a big deal back in the 70s and 80s when I grew up, so it's quite interesting to think this was his son, um, and, and um, what had got him interested in this, and it was basically his inquiry as a, uh, as a man of Jewish descent, really, into some of the some of the history of the 20th century. And, of course, people tend to focus on one particular part of the 20th century, whereas it's a bit more broad than that. So so I was accused of this and that or all, all the rest of it. So I thought at that time, well, you know, what, I'm, what I, I've got a choice here. It's either I'm going to react to this um, or I'm going to have to sit tight for a little while and see how things develop. And it was an interesting time because I was able to observe how people react and how quickly they're able to form a mob um, and how quickly they can come to uh, various different um, uh, ideas uh, based on pretty much nothing at all. So, yeah, it was an experience. Um, I was I was uh, deplatformed. I lost my label. I lost my band. Um, uh, the back catalogue was scrubbed from the label. And... Uh, and I was kicked out as a persona non grata um, without really any questions being asked from anybody at all. 
So yeah, it was a it was a great lesson. It was a wonderful lesson. It, it taught me a lot about how people um, instinctively react to things these days and how they they um, they can't stand uh, the fact that anybody else is is moving outside of the the uh, the fold, if you like. Let me ask you. Uh, so, Dry, I'm going to butcher his name. Menu Menuin, is that it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now you said that. This guy is primarily known as a Holocaust denier, and but he's of Jewish descent. You mentioned. Yeah, I mean, as I said, the problem with, again when we're when we're talking about um, internet culture, social social media, and the way that everything is kind of like um, uh, is again coming back to the genre and, and, and categorization. You go to Wikipedia, you know, you will find out that he's he's a Holocaust denier because that's um, part of his book. Um, tends to focus on that particular area, so that's the immediate alarm bells that go off with people. And of course, that's a that's a terra incognita, and it's somewhere where, where nobody can even consider having any any thoughts contrary to the um, the perceived uh, um, story that, that has come down to us. So you know, so yes, he was the the son of the Jewish violinist um, Yehudi Menuhin. Okay, so what would you say to I guess to Jewish fans who feel either betrayed or disappointed by this controversy um, that maybe perceive this as by you putting this guy in a liner note as being callous towards them or their past or kind of undermining tragedy from the past. What would you say to, to anyone who's a fan of yours who feels that way? Well, it's an extrapolation, isn't it, really? You'd have to be able to connect the two ideas together in the first place. So nobody's managed to do that. I've left it left it in the in the exact state, same state as it was, which is there's a name of somebody on the liner notes, and uh, make of that what you will. It doesn't mean that I, I agree with a particular idea or that um, I go into a particular area or anything like that. And as far as Jewish fans are concerned, it's, it's quite a remarkable number of of more robust Jewish fans have, have actually got in touch and said, well, you know, I understand where you're at. Um, it's not about the issue itself; it's about the issue of freedom of thought. And about uh, the the cancel culture that we're we're being um, pulled into these days. So I think a few people are more canny than uh, than than they might be given credit for. Well, the reason I asked particularly about the Jewish fans, aside from the the whole nature of of the controversy, was that I find that a lot of the really loud people um, that are calling for for people to be cancelled and such are generally young liberal white non-jewish people um people who are people who come from a place of privilege are the ones who are who are getting who are the loudest about this sort of thing and that that is the absolute phenomenon there itself in a nutshell really and as i say i've had i've had a few jewish friends reach out and say you know that we might disagree on some things and they don't know whether we do or not at this point but they would always uh maintain that it's very important for us to always keep the door open um, and keep on talking and discussing stuff and always discovering and always questioning. And uh, that's all that I, I've ever done in my life. And I got into a position which in retrospect, yeah, maybe I could have, I could have handled a bit better, but to be true to myself, all I've ever done is ask questions. And I, I grew up within a so-called subculture, which already we've, we've covered this ground, which was, supposedly based all on the ideas of no gods no masters you must question all authority regardless of 
You must always have an open mind. You must always be available to new streams of thought. It doesn't mean it's going to turn you automatically into some monster. It means that as a human being, your journey must always be open to discovery. And once somebody tells me that it's no longer open and it's no longer a road that you're supposed to or or allowed to go down, then I'm going to tell them where to go with that, really. Well, I think that that goes along with everything you've always said. So. <laughs> I like to remain true to myself. And I think if, if I didn't do that, um, I, I would betray everything that I've ever ever maintained in my life. And I see so many people making compromises these days in order to feel accepted or loved or to fit in or to sell records or to be in a, a popular band. And the, the more I look at it, the more it revolts me. And I look at the compromises made by people um, within the music industry in order to be able to um, hold a, a particular place, which is about money and power and um, social prestige and all the rest of it. And I, and I feel sorry for them in, in, in some ways because without the, the, without the integrity um, of being able to stand by what you believe in yourself, you might as well give in. It's just you mean nothing. You're, you're, your life's work, if you're a musician that, that thinks that there's some kind of like a, um, a revolutionary who comes across um, this kind of situation and is declamatory about it, um, I mean, just give up because you're, you're a fucking hypocrite. Um, I, I agree. I agree 100% with that. I've seen some things online where now, you know, people are clamoring um, because of this. As you said, people didn't. Actually, let's talk about that first. You mentioned that nobody really reached out to you after this. And I, I was curious, you know, if there was any discussion from your record label or your bands, did they come to you and say, hey, what's this all about? Hey, like, can you explain this to me? I'm concerned. Um, I even saw a statement from your brother um, kind of condemning you over this. And I was wondering... Who reached out to you, if anyone? Thank you, Curtis. That's exactly the, exactly the question you should ask. And the answer to that, of course, is no one. Uh, I didn't hear from my brother. I didn't hear from uh, Roy Mayorka, my ex-drummer. I didn't hear from Spider, who apparently, you know, I hadn't seen the guy for, well, played with the, the guy for over 30-odd years. Um, nobody. Nobody asked. Nobody phoned. Nobody contacted me at all. All they did was they just shat themselves collectively and um, hid in the little holes and started to throw um, throw their insults over the over the top of that. Um, so I'm pretty much um, I'm pretty much done with with those sort of people. Really, uh, I would have expected better from from some of them. Really, to be honest, uh, people that call you brother. Um, I don't mean just in the in the um, in the familial sense. I mean in, in the broader sense as well. Um, not not even the courtesy of getting in touch and saying, hey, man, how are you doing? What does this mean? What's going on? Not a thing at all. So what people do instead is that they, they get on into the, uh, into the mob uh, and they help the mob to attack uh, in a dog pile an individual. So let's be very clear about this, Curtis. The, um, the accusations which I've come under have been entirely unfounded. There's not one single person that can substantiate any of the, the the defamatory remarks that have been placed against me. They can't they can't find the line in between this and that. They can't see that. They, they can't make the connection because it's not really there. 
Um, so what they've allowed themselves to do is extrapolate wildly from one thing and make a fucking idiot of themselves and kind of expose themselves from the, for the people that they are. So that was one one bonus from this thing. And I'm starting to sound a little bit bitter about this because you can have the excuse of slight vitriol having been on the, the on the end of of an extremely um, uh, violent campaign, really, for the for the last year and a half as an individual. Um, I have very little respect for these these people. I have very little respect for the so-called scene they come from or their so-called moral stance or their individuality or their willingness to question. Um, and I think they've shown themselves for who they are. So, yeah, there's, that's, there's that. Um, and there's people online that are saying he needs to th- say this, he needs to do that. He needs to publicly... Um, uh, be pardoned by all of us for for something which they can't really explain what it is that I did in the first place. So I'm, that's why I said I've I've watched and I'm still watching to a degree. Um, How close were you with the other members of Tau Cross? Oh, I'm still very close with at least <laughs> at least half of the band. Okay, and I'm not. You know, I I, I haven't spent any time online slagging off any of my ex bandmates. I'm not about I'm- to do. I know that. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, people have people have had their pile in, and that's fine, whatever. Um, but I I like to feel that I've I've tried to maintain a little bit of dignity and not go and do it the other way around. So, uh, how close was I? Oh, I loved all those guys. Um, and uh, I asked that because I wanted I I I can't imagine being in the situation that they were in and not going to someone that I was close to and asking, you know, if I was concerned, not going and saying, Hey man, like what's this about? I can't imagine just writing someone off without well, even approaching them. Okay. Right, well, I'll, um, there was, a, there was a covert meeting that went on first of all, which I wasn't invited to. Um, what, before this thing blew up before I, before I knew that it had blown up, there was a meeting that went on between certain individuals in the band and the record label which I hadn't been invited to, and I was slightly disappointed about that. Um, and then when I was I was asked that very specific question, which you can imagine what that question was, by the record label, I told them on two separate occasions, the answer to that is no, um, and left that with them as, as to how they were going to proceed. And I said to them at the time, well, you know, if, the, if this is proving such a difficulty to you, why don't you just take that name off um, and, uh, and get rid of that? And that's fine, you know? That would have been the way around it. But... Uh, I suppose, you know, people needed to be able to be seen to taking some sort of position. But although the position itself is kind of facile and it's useless because it didn't mean anything at all. All it did was um, it reinforced the idea that um, people should be shut down for crimes that you think they might have committed within their mind, which, you know, we, we might call thought crimes. So that's kind of what it boils down to, really. Yeah, it, it does. Um, now, I'm going to ask you just straightforward, for those who have accused you of being an anti-Semite because of all this, are you an anti-Semite? Uh, Anti-Semite, how do you mean? What, what would be anti-Semite? What would that mean? Could you, tell, could you tell me what anti-Semite means? I know where you're going with this because of, Good. I think I know where you're going with it, because I have a lot of problems with Abrahamic religion and such. Um well, it's not that. It's, it's, 
it's the convolution of ideas because as you're, you're, you're very much aware, Semitism is not a group of people. It's a, it's a language group. And that, that language group is, is basically um, Aramaic and Arabic and Hebrew. It's got nothing to do with people. It's to do with a, a, a language group. So if you were to ask that and say, am I against a language group? I'd say, no. Am I against a cultural group? No. And so, I think that that's, that's the question that people, that's the way that people are going to think about it. Are you against a cultural group? No, of course I'm not. And, and I think that that, that comes across pretty clearly to me. Um, and as I said, I know that if we didn't say that straight out, people would be being well, themselves in the comments. <laughs> I'm not bothered about pleasing people. I, you know, I can, I can tell you, yes, there'll be, there'll be comments for, from people that would never, never, ever be satisfied before oh, the, absolutely. somebody gets down on their knees before them and starts flagellating themselves and they can fuck themselves. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if, if that meant um, I had to be the most hateful person in the universe to to not do that, I would say, yeah, I'm that person. I'm whatever. I'm whatever fucking bad guy you want me to be, because I'm not apologizing to you people. I'm not getting down on my knees in front of you people because you're despicable. And I don't think that you have any reason to apologize. Good. I don't. So um, and there's an interesting current in our culture that people feel entitled to make that they should be able to make others apologize for whatever perceived transgression they want. And like you said, they can, if they can dogpile upon someone enough that they're entitled to this apology for, for whatever reason. And they're weak people. And as you pointed out early on, generally speaking, they're probably not from a particularly um, ethnic background and probably uh, in a position themselves where they're privileged enough to be able to indulge themselves in whatever fanciful notions they have of social justice. Um, so the, these are false people. They're fakes. Yeah. Let's go back to the, the new album a little bit and talk more about the artistic aspect of it now. As I said, I love the new album. And I think that it, I wonder what it was like for you having to record it twice. Was it kind of disheartening? Was it revitalizing? It was difficult. Um, because, you know, most people think that they'll just buy it buy an album from a band and it's like, oh, they've made some new music. That was easy. Bum, bum, bum in the studio or whatever. And it's out. But, you know, it's not like that, particularly if it's a, a band that operates internationally. It's like going, spending a lot of time trying to put together songs and, um, and edit them and, and work them internationally in between different stages, make a, make a demo, then going on to, to make a record and all the rest of it. So we'd been through all those stages, first of all, and we'd gone and we'd made a fully fledged record uh, and it sounded good. Um, and then all of that was pulled out like a rug underneath um, through this bullshit controversy. Um, and I was left with the with the choice, really, um, which 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 was to um, either con concede defeat for something or, or to say, fuck you and to carry on regardless. So I decided that and I made a, 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 a um, I made an open promise at that point that it was it, it might end up being a, a cassette only copy um, sold to three men and a dog or whatever but i was determined i would make that album because it was material that i would i'd written myself to to the to a great degree and i i decided to omit any of the material written by other people apart from uh, the the title track which is written by john 
John Misery. And John and I are, are still the best of friends because he's what we call a punk rock guy. He's somebody that actually understood um, that you, you go on and you keep asking questions and you don't give a fuck about these people because they won't be here tomorrow. They're grifters and they just they'll, they'll make out of the scene what they can and they'll move on. And they'll keep on vampirizing everything else until it's totally sucked raw, you know, like a husk. So I'm happy with John. John's happy with me. Um, this, and I wanted to keep that song because it's a fucking killer. Uh, and he's a great guitarist and he's a good friend. So I had to, to approach these songs again and try and find people that were willing to uh, to have the social stigma of being involved with somebody so awful as myself um, and a venture like this. Uh, and that took quite a while, I must say. I went through three different guys that were going to be playing guitar. And it wasn't through through lack of willingness at all. It was just the circumstances didn't allow and I eventually found some guy that fitted it just right. Uh, and I founded a guy on drums. Uh, I found a dry, I found it. I found a guy on drums. Um, and we started to work as three people together uh, and re restructured the songs, thought about them again, um, and had the opportunity to, to, to breathe a completely different kind of force into it because of what I'd been through um, during this time. There was a lot of, obvious anger and resentment but that as as an energetic force can be carefully channeled channeled into this kind of music until it kind of it imbues the whole thing with a kind of urgency and a reality which it may not have had in its first incarnation i'll say safely speaking um and it certainly didn't um so this is this is this is a different album which is full of life rather than one which perhaps was non-committal on the, on the behalf of some people. Well, I will say out of the Tau Cross albums, this is my favorite. And, um, I think it, it stands out. Um, and you think that it came out better in the second version? I didn't expect it to be, to, to, to be honest, actually, I did not expect that. I thought that the best I could do was to Try and put the songs out and they would be okay and, you know, be that kind of like a tick next to that box. But extraordinarily enough, they were improved. Um, they were made better. Uh, the whole thing as a package started to work together. There was a cohesiveness to the songs and also the ideas behind them that works as uh, as a string, as a, as a thread going through this as a whole story and make sense of it. So I came away from this almost shocked thinking fuck this is, a, this is a great album it's a really good album and i didn't expect that and i was just it's like the it's the icing on the cake it's like there's one good thing that's come from this is doing something better than it was in its original incarnation and it's gotten from what i've seen it's gotten very strong reviews um despite the the controversy around it and despite how certain um certain punk rock and metal magazines view you currently um i haven't seen any negative reviews of it no i, I saw one but it was kind of like a bit half-assed anyway and i i kind of expected that there would be a bit more of a um there were a bit bit more of a damning by faint praise but the what instead what happened was they just didn't bother at all so i've been very objectively ignored by the mainstream um, music press now because they don't know 
they don't know what to do with this at all. They they still think that somehow something's going to happen to them if they engage with it. And the the few people that have um, have been basically good, strong people of a strong um, strong mindset who are aware of who they are as individuals and what they think. Um, the rest of them are fucking sheep, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm very yeah. You know, some of the people that I met along the way, journalists, um, I I established relationships with and I thought we were really talking and that we really did have something in common uh, and when this happened and I didn't hear a thing from them afterwards despite getting in touch it's just okay right I see where we're at now but I understand this as well I mean a lot of people are not in the fortunate position that I'm in that, that I'm you know I have I'm self-employed I run my own business I mean I don't make any money out, out of this world and I live where I want to want to live and all the rest of it but a lot of people are employed and a lot of people are actually frightened these days a lot of people live under the under the perpetual fear of being cancelled or being criticized or being somehow taken out for some slight nuance of an idea that might not quite articulate exactly how we should be thinking these days and looking back on a year and a half ago i mean even back then it wasn't like it is now and now we feel it all the way around us it's everywhere it's this this omnipresent kind of censorious nature about everything uh, and people trying to force you into having opinions that you you don't agree with anyway and why would you agree with them because they're completely unnatural so you know it's it's funny it's funny how how deeply compromised people have become and how they're still keeping their heads down they don't realize that they're going to be next you know this stuff just goes on and on and on i was one of if not the first but i was one of the first people you know, and you've got People since then that have been like heads are being lopped off left, right and centre. And you better watch out because they're coming for you next. You just don't know yet. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. You know, I, I try to approach my life as fearlessly as possible and my art as fearlessly as possible. But, you know, part of me was like, man, I'm going to get some shit for talking to Rob Miller. Um, and it made me a little bit nervous, but I don't care because – you know, this podcast in particular is about talking to people I find interesting and I find you interesting. And I, I knew we would be able to have a good conversation, but more so I'm not going to live my life afraid of others. And I think that, that one of the things that you've shown here that I think gets forgotten, people, I don't think expected you to put out this album. They didn't expect it to meet with any success. They didn't expect you to get any support. And they forget that, man, like, you've been DIY since like 1978. Like you can't be canceled. You can't be stopped because you're not going to let yourself, you, you have this will that drives you and anybody who comes from that DIY we were, background. We were the people that invented this, you know? Yes. So yeah, you're quite right. We, we, we were the underground and I've gone back to the underground now, whether I like it or not, but you know, I'm used to being here. And I've, I've, you know, I've been, I've been in some shit fucking places in my life, and I've lived, I've lived. Sometimes in my life have been hard. Other times I'm blessed with having a, a great deal of luck and a great deal of good people around me. But uh, I've known hard times to a degree, you know, and uh, I know what it's like. So I'm not frightened, um, and I, I, I know where where this stuff comes from, what it should be, and what it should mean. So I'm just trying to represent that. That's all. Simply, that's all. Just trying to get people to remember what the message is. And the message is no gods, no masters. 
get it you know it means you don't subscribe to any fucking religious ideology and i don't mean just broadly abrahamic religiosity if you like i mean the whole idea about creating a religion out of one specific subject and when that subject can't be questioned in any way whatsoever it becomes de facto a religion it has its own dogma it has its own syntax it has its own its martyrs and its um uh and it's um and it's priests and it's uh stigmata and all the rest of it and it's placed above and, and aside from the normal conversation that's a fucking religion i had i think i told you earlier on before we started on this i did a a conversation with a um a really interesting guy who runs a, a podcast which is more based around esoteric um, and philosophical ideals rather than music. But he happens to be a bit of a metal punk head as well. And after he, when he was the first guy, in fact, got in touch with me. And after he had put out his interview with me, he gets the inevitable idiots getting in touch and giving him a hard time. And one of them says that, um, uh, he says, I'm surprised you didn't denounce Rob Miller. And he said, well, I knew it straight away. He said, when people start using language like that, I'm not about to denounce anybody. You're talking about a religious institution. And this is somebody that's talking you know, about philosophy, about Gnosticism, all the rest of it, at its, at its deepest roots, about people that have been burnt alive for heretical ideas throughout the ages. And, uh, of course, he wasn't accepting that. So he didn't tell this guy so much to go and fuck himself. But uh, if, I, if I'd been there, I would have done. He politely declined to denounce Rob Miller. And, you know... The more people who are fearless about this kind of thing, the better. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with me personally on anything at all or whatever it is you think I might think, because that's all that this is ever based on, is what people think I might think. They don't have any fucking idea. It's not about that. It's about the broader um, matter, which is that we must still keep thinking. We must still keep challenging and discussing. We must keep our minds and our, our inquiry open all the time so don't worry anybody that comes at you it's like they're small people they don't they don't have anything better to do in their life they're little people yeah i mean fair enough they're running the show right now and we're unfortunate and we're living in a sort of era where they are the voice but they're little people uh, they have no idea what they're doing and they're destroying everything and we just happen to be here at this great moment in time where everything is fucking collapsing. And they're the people that do it. You, you know, you're absolutely right about the, about this being a religion too, and the, the the language that people use with it. And you know, like you, I I prescribe to the whole idea of you know, no gods, no masters, so to speak, to use your your words. And Years ago, when I was younger, you know, I got the word heretic tattooed across my back, and it wasn't just uh, an anti-Christian thing. It was that I would always question, and I would never just accept things blindly. And that doesn't seem to have value in the underground anymore. Um, it's, it's, it's. I don't know. It was valued at one point. Now I don't know. It, there's nothing heretical about the underground i guess or it's um i suppose it's not the underground anymore yeah I'm not saying that it's the main i'm just saying it's the normal you can dress up how you how you want you can put all the fucking white face paint and, and black and all the rest of it on you you can you can have studs out your fucking ass but unless you are who true to who you are you're nothing at all you need to be real people need to be real you know and it's this I, I agree with you. 
the heretic is it's a great position you know it's a it's it's the thing to be it, it really is because you need to keep on pushing those buttons and 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 forcing these people out of their mediocrity, and they are mediocre. I mean, I'm, it's funny because I haven't really had an interview where where I've, I've sounded so vitriolic, and I'm very much aware of that in this one. So I have to say it's drawing something out here, but I mean it. You know, I mean it. I'm, I've I've been uh, bitterly let down by people that I thought were better. And I, I thought I'd had, I had a measure on it. I thought they had some kind of integrity. But it's all around us. And you look at those people, and if you sense fear in them, they're fearful about everything, about the way, they, the way they're perceived, then these are what we gloriously like to call, call posers. They're fucking posers. And half of the scene that I was involved with are posers. So one of the things that I, I kind of think is a problem with you know i guess society in general but in particular with with these kind of scenes is especially now everything is seen through a political lens and um you've never approached art super politically you've approached it more in in philosophical ideas and esoteric ideas um in your lens has always been i guess broader and deeper than the political so when you're not willing to to put yourself strictly, um, I guess, view and examine the world strictly from a political sense, they don't know what to do with that, and it, it bothers them. Mm. Yeah, that's because, the, 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 I mean, ideas, the big ideas are perennial. They're, they're, not, they're not these sort of transitory moments. They're not these political ideologies or schema that, that come up from time to time we 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 are just going through processes but at the at the political base we've lost all of the the original um nobility of greco-roman thought for instance of of philosophy and of, of reason um and of the the great dialogues that people were capable of having back in um antiquity we don't have that anymore, and I think over the last, perhaps the last 200 years, we've started to really feel that decline. Um, and in the last, probably, well, since the, probably since the 1950s, 1960s, the most notable sort of drop off of any kind of uh, responsibility for your your own thoughts and your own actions. Um, so we are, you know, as as they say, it's the Kali Yuga. We're we're entering a, an age of of chaos and of meaninglessness and people don't have a moral compass anymore they don't have any any means of being able to detect who they are or what they should be doing they're lost they're all lost and the only only life raft they seem to have is forming groups with other stupid people who can try and um enforce their own hideous sub sort of ideologies which are generally speaking always restrictive and always about stopping people from expressing themselves or talking about ideas or having a discussion or actually properly debating like human beings. Yeah, and you know, I have a neighbor, she's a little bit older, and something came up about the 1960s, and we were talking about it, and she was saying, contrary to what everyone says, the 1960s was, was a terrible time to be a woman because 
you had pressure from mainstream society saying that you have to act like this and you have to dress like this and be this way, but then you had counter pressure from from the counterculture saying, no, you have to dress like this and you have to do that. And if you don't have sex with me, then you don't believe in free love and you're a, you're a square. And um, there was this thing that was supposed to be very freeing um, and was just another another box that you know to conform people. Yeah, very much, very much so. Um, it's, the, it's the whole sort of the urge toward degenerate you know, within the, the school of, of modern art and also the whole thing about like the Frankfurt School back in the, in the 20s and 30s and how there was a premeditated effort to undermine all of the, um, all of the noble principles um, that had um, founded the university and, and schooling structures um, and to turn them against themselves. Uh, through the, what they call the, the long march through the institutions in which we're we're beginning to harvest now and they've actually won they they've managed to to um degenerate everything now so there's no meaning anymore at all so we don't have um we don't have a, a relationship with one another um as human beings as, as men and women everything is confused and purposely so and you know, it's not it's not something that's come about um naturally because of a of a, a grand evolutional model, it's an, an actual purposeful uh, destruction of um, us as human beings in order to be able to, to, to bring us to the level of animals, um, not being unkind to animals. I mean, don't get me wrong with that, but you know, it, that kind of like the brutalism um, and the, the senselessness of uh, very basic instinctual creatures, I would say, rather than animals. Now, you're saying that you think that this is not a natural evolution, that this is by design. Um, how so? Well, as I say, I quote people like the Frankfurt School, um, uh, as, uh, and the, we would say it was neo-Marxism, communism, and all, all the rest of that. And, you know, it's come from various different spectrums, but people that have been involved all the way along in a cohesive and also a, a it's not even covert, it's an overt um, uh, campaign to undermine all the principles of Western and the people that have said from the outset that they that this is this has been their their life task is to tear it down and they will you know and that's that's all we have now is people tearing stuff down but we we also live in a society of of the non-creative the people that can't build anything again they've they've lost all their skills they've lost their reason they've lost their way they don't know how to to make anything anymore they're non-creative they're just destructive and that's it you know it's interesting that you bring that up i am um, there's a novel that i wrote which uh one of the main focuses is i don't know if you're familiar with the the french term anomie i don't even know if i'm pronouncing it right but it, it basically means for young people to have no no mooring no kind of cultural or moral um foundation and to just be kind of lost um and I really want to explore that idea because I, I do feel that that's, that's the case in a lot of ways that in, I have mixed feelings on this coming from kind of a, a rebellious background. Um, I think that obviously you should question all things and, and question the past and such, but there were certain, certain traditions and aspects of the past that have now been just th so thrown to the wind. We, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, um, and have lost a lot of 
a lot of the valuable wisdom that has been acquired over millennia and we're paying the price for that i think it's it's a sort of uh, analogous to the, the sort of tower of babel story you know this idea about not being able to communi- communicate with one another anymore and as i say that i think that's very purposeful and i think that social media in the most recent sense has been responsible for that because there's this it's a garbling of information um and also there's there's this kind of insidious trend of getting getting people to accept the absurd as being normal and there's the humiliation of having done that once and being pulled into it again and again and again it's like if you've if you bowed the knee to this one time um then you find yourself being um, faced with the prospect of the the next even more concerned absurd proposition, which you you are de facto having to be able to submit to. So people are losing themselves in a maze of uh, of the ridiculous. So they can't identify who they are anymore or what their real purpose is, or, or how they feel inside, or what their truth is. They don't have that, they don't have a moral compass because it's been removed surgically by um, by this, yeah, by, by, by basically the imposition of ideas that are so impractical, so absurd, and so um, contrary to any kind of reason that we have as human beings and you you know we won't talk about what they are openly but we all know what they are and they they go on and they go on they go on every day we get another news story about somebody trying to force an even more ridiculous proposition across as being a, a, a valid social construct and none of them are in the first place so once you take that pill first of all you're kind of like uh you're you're um you're obliged to keep on going down your own personal rabbit hole of nonsense. And I, and I think people are stuck down there now. They're so far stuck, they can't remember what they are. They can't remember what their relationship is with the, the, the simple physical world, you know, nature, which is always true. It's always there. It's always speaking to us and saying, yeah, there's nothing here which is unnatural. There's nothing which is a lie. Here it is. Now, you kind of touched on this on the Taucross Facebook page. You said something about nowadays there, there are two sides. I'm looking at it right now. Nowadays, there are two sides are very clearly defined, not politically or socially, but through their attitude towards life and what it means, how it should be lived versus a synthetic version of reality that is being overlaid onto the real, the authentic experience of what it is to be human. Um, and that really spoke to me, that, that mention. And I think that we are under the impression that a lot of these divides are, are political, but I, I don't think that they are. I think it's something deeper than that. No, I'd, I'd, I'd say you, you're right. It's not political at all, but it's being able, it's being, it's being managed as a, as a political um, ideology, but it's not. Um, it's just purely team A and team B. It's a very careful segregation of people. So you find, for instance, you know, I've got people that I know that, might not be um, in agreement with the uh, with the COVID, whatever it is, whatever we want to call it. I won't go into my own opinions on that just now. Um, but this one particular individual who's very much what I would describe as a lefty, 
Um, but he's found himself now being um, labelled as a far-right extremist because he's chosen to put his uh, his lot in with this particular crowd, none of none of whom are. But there's this is kind of like arbitrary, distinctive n- labels being given to people um, to separate them off uh, into into these very distinct groups by people that know exactly what they're doing, people that that have basically defined psychology um, and know exactly how we're going to react and how we're going to act in these given situations, these particular sort of pressure conditions as well. That's a, a pretty terrifying thought. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, I don't want to keep you too long, but there were a few other things I wanted to get into. I don't want to keep you all day. Um, can we switch gears to talk about the sword making a little bit? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So let's just try and finish off on this as well, because you kind of drag you drag me through and over the coals of stuff, and I respect that, and that's absolutely fine. Um, I just, yeah, it's just, it's, it's. I'm, I hope that I've tried to make some sense of a situation that didn't make much sense at all. But as an overview for people that don't understand this yet, the situation I was put in was of having been immediately accused of something for which there was no evidence. So. I had a choice, which was to either buckle down and and make an apology for something which I didn't believe that I'd done wrong in the first place, or to sit and watch and see how people react and see who was who. And the outcome of that has been very, very instructional. It's not been great. It's not been a, it's not been <laughs> an enjoyable journey whatsoever. I mean, anybody from from the um, from the dogpiling side, you try and sit in those shoes for a little while, you won't like it. But these are things that we can bear and that we can do and that it is our duty as human beings to maintain our own integrity in these sort of times and these circumstances now much more so than at any other time in my own personal life and history we need to stand up for whatever it is that we believe in or in this case don't believe in which is I don't believe in people being dog dogpiled for having an opinion which is just made up out of the blue. Um, so that's kind of rounding off that one, if you like. I hope yeah, um, as, absolutely. As I, I I wanna add, yeah, I, I want to add on to that um, just real quick that anyone who is listening to this who um, is kind of maybe like, you know, oh, that's bullshit or whatever, like, or you should have been dogpiled upon. Rob is absolutely right that this isn't going to stop as long as people allow it to carry on and it's going to it's going to happen to you at some point if you're if you're any bit genuine someone's going to find something that they're going to misconstrue and people are going to pile upon you for it um because we allow this to keep happening so wise words said Curtis absolutely that's wisdom it will happen and you're seeing it already. It's like they eat their own. It keeps on happening. Um, so at some point, it's up to the individual. What's wh- what are you going to stand for? What what are you going to do? Uh, you just have to you have to be able to stand your ground at some point and and work out what the cost of that is. And I did that, and I assessed that, and I, I accepted it, and I still accept it to this day. Now I'm again in that fortunate position. It's like I've actually turned that thing around, and I. I put out an album which is a fucking killer, um, and I know that, and it's like I'm so proud of that. It's like absolutely 
again, to come back to an earlier part of the conversation, it's informed by anger uh, and informed by resentment and frustration, but not just in the negative forms, but in that whole anger is an energy of Johnny Rotten, you know? Yep. Absolutely. So let's talk about swords. Yeah, let's talk about swords. Um, I just found it really fascinating when I found out that after Amoebics, you went and made swords. And my understanding is that um, uh, towards the end of Amoebics, you, um, you know, you were with a woman, she got pregnant, you basically had to get a job and had to, to become a, a respectable member of society and such. And your creativity kind of dried up during that time. So I'm curious about your journey from this kind of um, surreal existence in Amoebics on the fringe of society to being a father working a job to being this, this swordsmith living on a Scottish Isle. Mm. I mean, these, the, the thing is, there's a lot of junctures in, in that journey as well, which is fairly disconnected, but I was just, a, I was an idiot um, as a, as a youth, as we all are. And that's great. And I forgive myself. And I think that was a wonderful journey and all the rest of it. And, um, that, but that was an, it was a kind of another lifetime ago as well. And I'm, I have a son and he's, he's an absolute fucking star. And I have a granddaughter now. Uh, and my son is, God, what is he now? Blimey, he must be 36, 37. No, can't be. Something like that. Ridiculous. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, life, life just goes on. So, um, I, I moved away from that situation down south. And uh, I arrived on Sky, on the Isle of Sky in the Outer Hebrides here in Scotland, 30 years ago, almost to the day now. It's uh, in February, yeah, February or March of um, of 91. And um, the days before the Internet, so I'd actually moved so far away from mainland Britain or England or the scene or any of that stuff that I was completely uncontactable. Uh, and and just started to live a, a completely different existence altogether and as uh, as somebody on a scottish island um getting used to getting back into nature uh, walking and you know strumming a, an acoustic guitar and being a bit of a hippie i guess um and uh i i came around to to having this fascination with with how you make a sword what 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 is a sword what does it mean why is it still this kind of numinous archetypal image that we have within our uh, pre predominantly European, Western European cultural heritage. And what does it mean? Um, where does it go? Uh, how would you make a sword these days? So I taught myself um, with the help of a friend here on Sky, he gave me a little garden shed and I, I made a basic forge and I bought some books that I could from old bookshops. And you'd have to actually physically write letters for people back then and wait for three weeks. They might send you back a book and it's like, if you want it, you can pay me £10 by cheque. <laughs> um, so absolutely completely different days. Um, so that was, it was my passion really, was to to get into manifesting some of the energies that I'd had um, in amoebics uh, into something else. There was this ongoing, and it was really an alchemical journey too, because I was I was getting more in depth interested in occult subjects and and Jungian Jungian approach to alchemy as well as a sort of Neoplatonic philosophy and all this kind of stuff. So I was starting to read uh, at more more than at any other time in my life um, and learning things and incorporating those in my own practice and finding that this 
art of the swordsmith, if you looked at it archetypally again, you could see that it's it represents all of the elements um, and the fusion of those in one particular scintillating object, which is this sword. So it must be an object of great beauty, but also um, it can be an encapsulation of the will of the the smith or the magician. And the smith and the magician were interchangeable terms um, at, at one point in our history where people couldn't understand how uh, how metals could be welded together through just fire and, and the cleaning sand and all this kind of stuff. So, so yeah, it was um, it was uh, it was an inquiry first of all that became something which I'm doing now to this day. So, you know, I'm, I'm I make a living out of being a swordsmith, living on a, on a Scottish island under the mountains by the sea. It's kind of crazy, really. It is. It's uh, you know, if I think of it, the age of you know, 14, what I one of you know, what I would have wanted my life to have been. That's the, that would have been one of the choices, but definitely. Um, it, it's wild that you were able to do that before the internet and just kind of, you know, make it happen to me. I don't know. It's, it's pretty awesome. And you're regarded as, as a world-class swordsmith. Am I right? That's a bit ostentatious of, to call myself that, but I'm not doing too bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm in- a girlfriend at the time, when I came up to Sky, and she said, "You have this ability to reinvent yourself." And it's it's funny. It's because I I always have, uh, and this is something I keep on coming around to. It's like, you know, probably the next time I'm going to die, um, it's going to kill me, whatever happens. But every, every one of these tragedies and traumas that have come up in my life, it's like it's been an opportunity to to just knuckle down harder and better and learn something new. And be better at what you do, um, and that was the that was the whole thing about making swords. It was coming coming out from another world altogether, into this harshness of a, a remote and wild um, terrain and landscape in a place I didn't know at all, in very harsh conditions. And it's it's difficult living up here, you know. Um, but this ability to be able to, or not ability, it's just this opportunity. I would say that I, I get given to to restructure and reinvent my life. But I'm getting old now. If, if I had to do this again, it's like I've had enough fucking punches. You know? <laughs> if I had to do it again, it'll, it'll probably kill me. But you know, at least people will know. I, I live my life and I, I tried my best to deal with adversity and, and to make the best out of it. And that's one of those things has been to, yeah, to make swords, to, to make good swords. And then I, I will say that I'm, yeah, without puffing myself up too much, I'm, mm pretty damn good at it these days i have a three-year waiting list and i have to tell people to go away now because i don't want to be bothered with their, their <laughs> now you mentioned that at one point in our history you know magician and, and smith were essentially interchangeable how do you do you incorporate your kind of occult and esoteric practices into your sword making no fucking way man no i used to no you can't you can't you can't go into the commercial environment and do that. It's like, yeah, it's like a a black a black metal band that becomes famous pretending that they're still really down. You know, they can't yes. do it. You know, so you, you 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 start to go into it as a business. So what I do instead now is I try and just keep the keep my level of um of craftsmanship up high. And um, whereas when I started, 
I would go into the minutiae of stuff and I would be really involved at that at that, that deep sort of occult level about thinking about it and about imbuing the, the steel. And then you suddenly realize, well, people aren't going to appreciate that at the end of the day. It's just you. It's just you doing your own work. You working something out alchemically within yourself. Um, people don't pay you for that. And, you know, I certainly wasn't getting paid anything for probably as much as 15 years. I was living on absolutely nothing at all. Um, but I was still going, doing, doing good work, but perhaps spending too long on that because of that other factor. So now I separate um, business from uh, the more personal aspects of that. And it's, it's not a bad thing to do. You know, it's, it's just being professional and saying, this is how I make money to afford to indulge myself in whatever awfulness I might like to inflict on the world next. <laughs> Absolutely. That's very fair. Um, so what's next for, for you? Will there be more Tao Cross after this? Yeah, I mean, about an half an hour before I was talking to you tonight, I was just, I'm, tra- I'm tracking some new songs. Um, slowly, though, slowly. It's like I've become quite aware with this. In the old days, working with um, Tao Cross, we had five, sometimes six musicians, and you could throw an idea out there, and you immediately get this sort of chain of response. So things could work up fairly quickly. And now there's myself and the drummer um, and he's great, but there's just the two of us. So we're slowly building things. And I'm, I'm having to say to him, listen, you're going to have to forgive me because I'm, I'm quite, it's taken a bit of time now because it's almost like this has been exhausting. This last particular journey has been exhausting. Um, and I need to, I need to re-energize. I need to find my connection again and find what it is that I want to say now, because I had the shit kicked out of me by people that I don't even know. And um, I'm trying to recover from that, but I will. Um, and I will keep on going. I just need to find what that direction is. But so far, there's a, there's two or three songs in the bag, and it's looking good. Uh, so it will be onward and upward, um, keeping going, sword, sword making busier than ever, um, music making slow but sure. All right. And... I have two more questions for you before I let you go. First of all, kind of going back to backtracking a little bit, how would you, or what advice would you give to people who are kind of concerned about this censorious culture that we live in that are afraid to to speak their minds, or not even maybe to maybe they're not even concerned with speaking their minds, but they're they're concerned with you know they're afraid to not even say things they don't mean just to kind of keep their heads above water. What kind of advice would you give people who want to be more honest but are afraid to? Well, for, for people that have this in their day-to-day environment, which I don't so much, um, I understand that it's a difficult time that we live in. I think yeah, that like people who are concerned about their job and supporting their family or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Yeah, I, respect, I, I, I absolutely respect that and I understand where that comes from. So, it's, it's difficult, but I think what you need to do is you need to identify what, what it is within yourself that you believe, and not in the religious sense, but in the very primal sense, at, at the heart of yourself, what it is that you stand for. And I think that you need to create that line that people do not cross. Um, and there's somewhere which they will not violate, and they never will, uh, and they never must. And you must be very, very clear that you never, ever bend the knee to any man. Um, because 
once you do that, they never let you get back up. That's the principle of it. You don't don't think of people as being um, generous and understanding and just trying to look out for your your best interests and trying to help you on the right way, the road to recovery because they're not doing that. It's an insidious and malevolent agenda that we we face nowadays, um, which you have to take a stand on at some point. You need to decide where it is that you take that stand, where is where is reasonable for those that you love and those that rely on you and those that are around you what your standard is you need to find out what your standard is that's that's it it's excellent advice and um i asked this question last to everyone and i think we've already touched upon it a little bit but what is your philosophy on art in general why do you make art and what do you hope to get out of it what do you hope to give with it The creative process is not one. Oh, it's going to. I'm going to sound terribly pretentious, but that's what you <laughs> do from time to time. <laughs> but the creative process is not one that you can engage on um, uh, superficially. If you want to at all, it's something which is absolutely imperative. Now, it's going to manifest in one way or another. So, I could say I could I could stop playing music or stop playing uh, stop making swords tomorrow and it would come out in some other way um we as human beings are it's our destiny to be creators now whether that's creating other little human beings creating societies or creating ideas and all the rest of it we need to manifest stuff in order to be able to realize that we are moving forward or we're moving onward or we are realizing we are coming into realization or that we are in sync with the natural world because the natural world gives us all that inspiration that's where i get mine from coming right back to the beginning of our conversation about amoebics growing up in devon you know this thing about uh the instinctive connection with 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 the earth and with nature constantly re-establishing that and realizing that what that's telling you is that you need to keep doing something um, you need to keep making and even in the most primitive of societies and even the most primitive times that we've had um, in our species, uh, you know, we've we've done rock carvings and paintings and we've made stuff and we've always ornamented or we've we've found some way to say this is me. This is I. This is this is who I am. Um, not in the purely egotistical sense, but in the sense of a remembrance of the fact that we have a unique place in the universe, I think that's what it is. We are creators who create to recognize our space. Fantastic, man. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a, an absolutely wonderful conversation, and uh, I'm thrilled to have had you on. Well, it's my pleasure, Curtis. Thanks so much for getting in touch, and uh, look forward to hearing this. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chum. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.